Let's pray a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to the Scriptures. We invite you, come Lord. Holy Spirit, please come and fill the Scriptures and open them to us. Take my words, Lord, and fill them that we might be led to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I said at the beginning of the service, we're in the third week of Advent, and that means we're in the third week of our preaching series called Arrival. We've been looking at the themes of Advent that are represented by the candles. We don't just want to do sort of religious things. We want to know why we're doing these things. Why do we do things like lighting candles, and what do they represent? The first candle, of course, represents hope. We have a hope that is a certainty that our future is secure, that God has all things in hand along the way, the candle of hope. The second week, we looked at peace. We have peace with God. In Christ, the hostility is over, and that leads to the peace of God in our lives. And this week, we look at this theme of joy. You can tell it's joy because it's a different color. It's, it's pink. We'll be looking today at joy. Everybody say joy. joy. Now, I'll say it like it's not a bad word. Joy. You know, I often say it's okay to smile in this church. Because joy often manifests itself on our faces, but it is something that resides within our hearts along the way. Let me start out like this, by asking some questions. One question in particular, and then a few examples. Have you ever lost something that is valuable to you or important in your life? What did you do? Yeah, it's it's an easy answer, I think. We'll see. Anybody ever lost your glasses? Were you like, you know, seeing's a little bit overrated? No, you went and you looked for those glasses. We have five people in our family that that wear glasses, and I, I don't know how many hours in the course of all of our lives we've spent hunting for somebody's glasses, sometimes several of us at the same time. Anybody ever lost your car keys? Right? I mean, were you like, yeah, I'll walk. Of course not. You go and you hunt for them. My wife, Catherine, was at a retreat earlier in the fall up in the mountains of North Carolina. The last morning of the retreat, she went for a run on a mountain trail to enjoy the beauty of the mountains and the leaves, which, of course, had fallen and piled up on the trail. Guess what she lost on her run? Her car keys. Didn't know it until everybody was leaving that morning. And I got a phone call saying, you might have to drive to North Carolina because her panic level was going up, and then my panic level was going up. What did we do? We prayed, and then she and a friend walked that trail, and miraculously, I believe, found those keys under some leaves off the trail in a place they really shouldn't have been looking. Anybody ever lose your cell phone? Were you like, ah, it wasn't that expensive anyway? Of course not. Your whole life is on that thing. You search for it. Thank God there are apps to help you find them. Anybody ever lose a pet? Ooh, now we're getting a little more serious, aren't we? Were you like, I didn't really like that dog all that much anyway? <laughs> well, hopefully you didn't respond that way. Last summer we were down at Kiowa, and um, we have these two 16-year-old dogs, and one of them is named Lulu, and Lulu is nearly blind and totally deaf. Lulu decided to go on an adventure on Kiowa Island. 
One moment she was there, the next moment, I mean, inexplicably gone. She's a tiny little dog. She's exactly alligator snack size. And if you know anything about Kiowa, there are a lot of alligators. So here we were, Catherine and I, tromping through the woods, really almost becoming alligator snacks ourselves. We never found Lulu. Somebody else found her. (laughs) But I wanted you to feel that moment. Because that's what it's like. It was right down here. That awe came from right in there. Ah, that's a bummer. You're talking about joy today. But see how you feel right now? That's the relief when the thing you have lost or that is valuable to you is found. Anybody ever lost your kids? Not, not permanently, but like, you know, at a sporting event or an amusement park. I'm pretty sure I have lost all three of my kids at one point or another I know a couple of you are going, note to self, never ask Chris to babysit. That's probably not a bad thing, right? It's that panicky feeling. And And then your mind generally starts to run through all the scenarios that could happen to them because it's a dangerous world and there's a lot of bad people out there. Here's what I'm getting at. Why do you look for the things that you've lost? Because they are yours and they are of value to you. The gospel is this. The same is true of God. Why does he look for lost people? Because they are his. We are his. And because we have supreme value to him. But here's the thing. It's not just like, God cares for people, and God searches for people. God cares about individuals, and God seeks after individuals. God seeks after you, and God seeks after me with an all-consuming, searching love that is intense in its pursuit and does not give up along the way. That's a remarkable thing, that that is what the heart of God is is truly like. He has this seeking love for you and for me. Let's go to the scriptures and see in Luke 15, verses 1 through 10, what Jesus wants us to see today by God's grace. As you're pulling those out, let me just remind you, he's surrounded by people. Jesus always drew a crowd. And why? Because of his love and because of his vulnerability and because of his approachableness and because of the compassion that he shows to people in the midst of real life. And so there was this ragtag band of friends that were around Jesus, these needy group of people. And most were not particularly religious. In fact, they were filled with the hated tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, outsiders, Fallen away, morally suspicious types, failures, outcasts, and that made the religious people, the moral types, the show up every Sunday folks, a little bit uncomfortable. The people around Jesus are are what we would call today the nuns and the duns, right? The people who maybe would have identified as not having any faith or who were done with organized religion. And so Jesus is there, and they seem to be drawn to him. 
I think they still are actually. And the religious leaders are concerned. Verse 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Basically, they're demanding to know from Jesus, why are you hanging out with that crowd? Don't you know if you're a holy guy and you're a a religious man and maybe a prophet that you are hanging with the wrong type? This is not the crowd that's going to get you places, Jesus. And he's amazing, isn't he? He doesn't lash back out at them in the midst of their lashing anger toward him. He's not like us at all in that way, is he? What does he do? Well, he doesn't justify himself before them. He doesn't explain his actions. He doesn't defend why he's doing this. He tells these two earthy stories designed to get around the carefully scripted and controlled defense mechanisms of their minds and perhaps our minds and to try to get to their hearts so that they might know who the real God is and who Jesus is standing there in front of them. And so he describes this shepherd looking for a lost sheep and a woman looking for a lost coin. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that lost it until he finds it? The answer is the same as all those questions I was asking you before. Of course, he's going to go look for his lost sheep. Nobody would not go look for their sheep. Nobody would fail to do it. But here's the thing. As soon as Jesus puts it into the terminology of shepherds and sheep, they're transported in their own consciousness, in their own self-identity to the language of God and the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel considered themselves as the flock of God and that God was the shepherd. You know, the most famous psalm of all, King David, the most famous king of all except for Jesus, said, the Lord is my Yeah, we say it in an Anglican church at almost every funeral service. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? And so suddenly this image of flocks and sheep and shepherds is playing upon their collective understanding. Think of it this way, Sunday school's popping up in their hearts and their minds, or the lessons that they've learned along the way. But it's more than that for them because every worshiping Hebrew person would have said or sung throughout their lives at nearly every liturgy, like we do on Sunday morning, a part of Psalm 100. Psalm 100 says this, know this, the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So this imagery is really loud immediately in their ears. The prophet Isaiah said of God, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock in his arms. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. What Jesus was doing is he was seeking to convict the Pharisees in their attitude toward these lost sinners, but also in their false understanding of who God actually is, right? As they stood there self-righteously asking, who does this guy eat with? You're hanging with the wrong crowd. He was trying to get them to see that the attitude of their heart put them absolutely at odds with the God they claimed to be following. You have to 
watch our own hearts, I think, along the way as well. The shepherd God had come incarnate in their midst and was standing there before them, describing himself using images and language they would understand. Of course, this same shepherd God, Messiah, Jesus, would say of himself, taking the very words of Psalm 23 and applying them to himself, I am the good shepherd, and my sheep know me. I lay down my life as a sacrifice for the sheep. Just as my father knows me and I know my father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He also would say, I have been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I have come to seek and to save the lost. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is this. He values people. He values us. Oh, how he loves us. And he comes after us with a rescuing love. We go back to the text, verse 5. And when he has found it, that's his lost sheep, the shepherd lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. Notice this. He doesn't berate the sheep for getting lost. You dumb sheep. Why'd you do an entirely sheep thing? Sheep don't get lost usually just by running off. They nibble their way to lostness. And I think that's the way people are too. We nibble our way into the lostness. And I don't just mean you got food issues, although that could be a thing. We tend to little bite, little bite, wander off, wander off, and then suddenly we're at a hole in the fence and we find ourselves, oh, a little green grass out there, and our head goes out and then our legs follow, and pretty soon we're outside of the fold, and we find ourselves wandering far and wondering, how in the world did I get here? But he doesn't parade him. He doesn't beat the sheep, bad sheep. No, he tends to the sheep. And if you know Psalm 23, he anoints the head with oil. The oil was used to keep away the biting insects and to be a healing balm for the wounds that the sheep would take along the way. And what does he do? He puts the sheep up on his own shoulders. The same shoulders that will pinned upon a cross, holding the weight of the sin of the world, the weight of your sin and my sin, taking your place and my place, this shepherd puts the sheep on his shoulders. And then he goes home rejoicing. He brings the sheep home. I love the scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And and I'm deeply reminded, I remember one day looking at that verse and going, what was the joy that was set before him that would cause you to endure that kind of shame, the nakedness, the beating, the pulling out of the beard, the flaying of the back, right? The, the, The asphyxiation of the cross. What is the joy of Jesus? Well, it's two things. It is the Father's pleasure that one man, one person, in the history of the world, actually obeyed. But it's also also this. You are the joy of Jesus. As though down through the corridors of space and time, he's looking while upon that cross at you and saying, I did this for you. You are my joy. You are my delight. You are the one for whom I have come to seek 
and to save. You are the joy of Jesus. You are of supreme value to God. How much value? Well, we look at it every week. We celebrate it in bread and wine every week. How valuable are you to God? Well, that that valuable. And so he takes it home rejoicing. Verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is the heart of God revealed. He goes after the lost sheep, and when he finds them, he rejoices. So he goes after those tax collectors. He goes after those sinners. But he doesn't stop there. This is not just a story about those guys. Because then he tells the story about the woman with the coin. And he's trying to get the Pharisees to see something incredibly important that the sinners have got figured out. Look at verse 8. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp? and seek diligently until she finds it. Now, we've got to translate it a little bit because most of us like toss coins away. They don't mean as much in our culture after you get to a certain age. Um, Let's put it this way. What person among you, if you lost one-tenth of your net value, would not go look for it to try to get it back? Some of you are going, yeah, I don't have that much net value. Yeah, I know. But the point is this. It would be foolish if you could get it back not to go after it and get it. And the answer, of course, is the same now as then. Of course, you'd go find it. Of course, you'd look for it. This is a tenth of all that she has. And so she would try to get it back. And when she did, she would be joyful. Verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. So what is Jesus saying in these two stories rammed up against each other? Is this. The sheep is lost outside. Outside in the wilderness. But the coin is lost inside the house. The coin is lost inside the house. The sheep, it's easy to see lost out there. It's easy to see some people's lostness. Because it bangs up against you and it makes messes of things that are ugly to see and hard to deal with. The sheep lost in the wilderness are pretty easy to spot. But with others like the Pharisees, their lostness is not quite as easy to pick out. They're lost in their hearts. Of course, Jesus is going to tell a third parable right after this, and we'll deal with it a little bit later in 2020, about two sons, both of whom are lost, and about a father that goes after both of their hearts. But I don't want to get into 2020 yet. Let's apply this, okay? Let's, let's take the text, what Jesus is trying to show them, and see how it might apply to us. Whether you wander off like a sheep into the wilderness and you get lost, or you stay here in the Father's house, but you wander off in your heart and you get lost, both are valuable to God. Supremely and totally 
valuable to God. But they're equally lost. The tragedy is when someone sitting in the Father's house doesn't realize they're lost. Hearing all the time the things of God and missing God all along. In a room this size, some of us are probably doing that. Not realizing that we're lost. But you may have done all the right things and yet lost the intimacy of your relationship with God. You can show up. Go to church. Do the liturgy. And miss His presence. Do you specifically, individually, personally, know the Father's heart of love for you? Because I can talk about Him all day long. But until the words move out of the realm of ideas and become personalized into your life, you can easily be lost sitting there doing all the right things. If you haven't accepted His forgiveness, this thing that we talk about, this cross that I try to recount and explain and shine light upon week in and week out, and if you haven't actually let it sink into your own heart, into your own needs, then you can sit there saying the words, singing the songs, and yet still be racked with guilt and bound up by shame and locked down by fear. And be lost in your heart from the things that he has come to purchase for you, the things that he offers for you and for me. You can take communion today, taking into yourself through eating and drinking the bread and the wine, symbolizing the body and the blood, meeting through these elements, through this living picture. And yet you might miss the infilling of the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do the things, and if they're not paired with faith, then we can be lost in our hearts to what God has died and paid so dearly to give us. And when we miss those things, we lose the Father's joy. Man, do we need a church filled with joy. But the good news, the good news is this, God is searching for you even now, even here in this room. And if your heart is stirring, if your heart is engaging, if your mind is going, whoa, that might be me, that's the Spirit's response. And the call then is to respond back and say, oh, Lord, come, please come. Oh, Lord, you're here. Please come. Please come for them and come for me. Please come for us, but Lord, come for me. And let me know this love and let me know this joy and let me know this hope and let me rest in this peace that what you have done is enough. Whether you're the sheep or you're the coin, whether you're lost in the wilderness or you're lost in the house of God, friends, you are valuable to him. And when you respond to his searching for you, you will know his joy. Now let me end with this. Because some of you have known the joy of the Lord in the past. And yet, it seems to be forgotten along the way. 
What happened? Well, some of those things, perhaps, that I was describing about being in the house and going through the motions and getting lost in your heart. But, as First Peter told us, there are trials that come our way. Life has a way of banging up against us. Disappointments have a way of smashing into us. Broken relationships, crushed dreams, heartaches, those have a way of taking our hearts and moving them from that place of freedom and peace and joy that we once knew and into a place of bitterness. Bitterness is a death blow to the joy of God. What do you do with bitterness? Well, what you do with it if you don't bring it to Jesus is you give it to the people around you like a noxious cloud has a way of affecting everyone else because it's going to spew one way or another. Whether it's in these catty little remarks, these critical words, or just this angry outburst, Jesus says, well, I'll take that from you today, but you got to be willing to give it to him. The good news is Jesus always trades up. We bring him our bitterness and our disappointment, and he begins to give us his joy. It might be a trickle at first, but it will grow, and it will grow. Last thing is this. If you explore your heart and you don't see bitterness there, then there's one other way that is a surefire way to get attuned with the joy of the living God. And that is to get attuned with the very thing that brings him joy. Seeking lost people. We got extra chairs here. You know lost people. Why not invite them into the joy of the gospel that we proclaim week in and week out? Why not befriend somebody and have coffee with them and listen to them? Because I'm pretty sure most people don't get listened to very well in this world. Why not, in the midst of the atmosphere of your office that might be full of anger and diatribe and undercutting and competition, why not switch and change the atmosphere by doing an opposite action of bringing peace and hope and encouragement and love, and forgiveness, and kindness. You see, that's the gospel, and that's what people are looking for, and that's what people desperately need. So if you're wondering where that joy is you once had, but haven't seen for a while, and you want it back, join the shepherd who seeks after the lost, and you'll get his heart immediately. There is nothing more joyful than to be a part of his plan of reaching people with good news. Let's pray. Lord, please come. You're here. And meet us. Take away our religious notions of you and our fear of outsiders. Where we've run away like sheep, forgive us, please. And where we've sat with folded arms in our hearts, doing the things of God but not knowing the joy and peace and hope of God, the very love of God, would you soften us? 
And I pray, Lord, for that, that man out there who sits like a tin man going through the motions of life but not feeling that you would lubricate his heart, Lord. For that woman who's caught in fear and bitterness because of the ways in which the world has hurt her and people have betrayed her. Oh Lord, let her forgive. Let her know your forgiveness for her. So Lord, make us a joyful people. Would you show us in the days leading to Christmas someone that we can bring joy to, hope to. Maybe bring to church, our life group. Or do a cup of coffee and a meal. Lord, for the sake of the one who's running after us, who will give us all the power we need. In Jesus' name we pray.